Whatever job you need to do out there, grab the right tool to get it done. The new F-150 with an available hybrid engine and up to 7.2 kilowatts of pro power on board to power things on the go. It's not a tool you'll hang in a tool shed, but you can certainly use it to build one. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Optional features the owner's manual for important operating instructions. the pft pm podcast and now your host mike florio it's a wednesday edition of pft pm plenty of things to get to as we get closer and closer to the return of football thursday night hall of fame game not really football like it will be five weeks from thursday night when it's bears packers to start the season but think about the preseason we'll take anything So even if it's not starting caliber players, or if they are on the field, they're gone before you even realize they were there. It's something. It looks like real football. It's the uniforms. Glorified scrimmage, but it looks like the real thing. And there's going to be some interest in seeing what some of these younger guys do, and they're fighting for jobs. And there's a certain respect that you have to have for guys who I think a lot of them know deep down that they they are dealing with a very very long shot to try to get to where they want to be the dream is going to end abruptly for a lot of these guys on August 31 when the roster is cut from 90 to 53 and some will keep at it some will just not quit they they will not give up until they have heard no that 50th time, 75th time, 100th time, whatever it is. So it's a combination of a love of the sport and of wanting to get the absolute most out of the physical skills they have and wanting to make the living for themselves and their families that they can make by playing in the NFL. And it will get interesting this year because some of these guys who get cut in the push from 90 to 53 will be pounced on by the XFL. A lot of those guys would have been available for the never-ending roster churn between spots 48 and 53. Some of those guys aren't going to be part of that because they're going to get whisked away to the XFL. They'll be put under contract and they'll be part of the push to promote the XFL that will occur September, October, November, December, especially quarterbacks. So some interesting decisions coming for teams that want three quarterbacks that only want to carry two on the 53-man roster and have to worry about cutting that third guy and not having him hanging around waiting because the XFL, which is going to want two quarterbacks per team of its own, eight teams, 16 quarterbacks may get plucked as the XFL tries to fill out their rosters with guys who have shown that they're good enough to at least be in an NFL training camp and make it all the way through the cut down from 50 or from 90 rather to 53. Few of the things happening in the NFL before I answer some of your questions. I saw that hashtag Tommy spoke today. We've generated a couple of different stories coming off of his remarks. One thing that I nailed down that kind of occurred to me today as I saw his comments about his contract, and there's no indication that the Patriots are going to give him 
a new contract. He's due to become a free agent after this season. He's only going to make $14 million, but his cap number is $27 million. And it occurred to me that last year, he was on the books for $5 million in what they call likely-to-be-earned incentives. If it's a likely-to-be-earned incentive, the team takes the cap hit in the year that the incentive could be earned. And if it's not earned, the team gets a cap credit the next year. If it's a not likely-to-be-earned incentive, you don't take the cap hit in the year that the incentive is or isn't earned. You take the cap hit the next year if it is earned. So what happened was the Patriots had $5 million in likely-to-be-earned incentives on Tom Brady's name, and he didn't earn any of them. So the Patriots have gotten a $5 million cap credit, but that does not reduce his cap number this year. They got a cap credit. They got $5 million, but his cap number for this year is still $27 million. And that is important because the cap number is the starting point for the franchise tag for next year. So at $27 million, you multiply that by 1.2 to give Tom Brady a 20% raise. By rule, that's what you get. Either the franchise tag base number or a 20% raise over your cap number from the prior year, whichever is greater. Starting at 27, his franchise tag number becomes 32.4 million. So he's got a hell of a lot of leverage here. Because if they decide they want to keep him, it's going to cost 32.4 million to do it. And that would be the ultimate question of whether or not he will take less. If he would take less on a one-year deal in 2020 than $32.4 million. He really is committed to team-friendly contracts. Even if he does something like taking a total payment of $32.4 million next year, but a lot of it's signing bonus, so that number gets spread over multiple years. So his cap number is not $32.4 million. That's doing the team a favor. Because he's entitled to say, I want the 32.4. And I can't think of a franchise player who has ever taken for a one-year deal less than what he was supposed to make. Now, plenty of players who are franchise tagged will do a new deal that reduces his cap number, but he still gets his money. And he still gets, in exchange for reducing that cap number, a significant payment over multiple years. So keep an eye on that because, again, Brady's got some leverage if the Patriots decide they want to keep him for 2020. If they decide after 2019, Father Tom has finally caught up with Tom Brady, they don't apply the franchise tag, he's available to anyone else. And we've seen plenty of great quarterbacks. They end up signing with other teams late in their careers. Is that what happens with the Patriots and Tom Brady? We've always thought that the ending was going to be one of two things. Tom Brady walks off into the sunset, or there's some sort of ugly divorce. It could be that it's just kind of a soft landing. Tom Brady's contract expires. Patriots don't apply the franchise tag. Tom Brady becomes a free agent. 
And he just chooses to sign with another team. And there's never that moment where the Band-Aid gets ripped off. Now, it's entirely possible he wins one more Super Bowl and walks off into the sunset. That could happen as well. But keep an eye on this because I don't think he's ever entered the last year of a contract. He's had several different contracts with the Patriots, but I don't think he's ever started the final year of a contract. That doesn't keep the Patriots from doing something, obviously, but the reports are that nothing is coming anytime soon for Tom Brady. He also talked about tight ends and the retirement of Rob Gronkowski to replace great players. It's not like you just pick another one off the tight end tree. You can't just go back. You've got to find guys that come in and want to put the work in and want to try to contribute. That's an important quote because one of the things that we said a couple of weeks ago, a personal appeal from Tom Brady could be the thing that gets Gronk to decide to come back and play. So keep an eye on that one as well. Especially if Brady thinks there's a chance this is it. And if he really wants that seventh one badly. Now, we know he wants it badly just because he wants another one. But Sims' theory is Brady wants to get to seven. So he has more than Michael Jordan. So he can be called the greatest athlete of all time in any sport. I don't know whether or not that's true. But if there is a higher degree of incentive and motivation this year for Brady to get to that number seven... Because maybe he feels like it is ending in New England. Maybe he does make that call to Gronk, especially if they struggle out of the gates. Washington reportedly having trade discussions with Trent Williams. I've heard that is true. Washington trying to find a way to move on from Williams, who has made it clear he does not want to be in that organization any longer. And they can be in denial all they want. He's upset with the way they handled the tumor slash growth, whatever it was on his head. It ended up being benign, but they did not handle it well in his estimation last year, and he has decided he wants to move on. And it looks like he's going to get the chance to do that. Now, the sooner they do it, the better. But there are teams out there that really could use help at left tackle, specifically the Texans. The Texans are the last team that had a left tackle that was disgruntled, remember? And they traded Dwayne Brown during the season. They've been struggling at left tackle since then. I think the Texans should be the first team to make that phone call. They just need to ask their general manager. uh, uh, they, They just need to find someone who knows how to work the phones and negotiate because they don't have a general manager, but they need to do something when it comes to the, uh, the status of their tackle situation. And they may want to poke around with Trent Williams. And I also think that, the moment they signed Donald Penn, that, that that was the moment that they they recognize that this is something that they need to be doing. Moving on from Trent Williams, it's just not going to get any better. They can't will it into becoming something that isn't a disaster. The Saints avoided disaster with Michael Thomas getting him signed. And I should have been more skeptical about this. The news broke while we were on the air that Michael Thomas had signed his long-term contract. And I had said on Friday that I believed Thomas wanted $100 million on a five-year extension and that the team was offering $95 million on a five-year extension. And the initial reports 
as they were leaked to multiple members of the media who just passed them along without scrutiny. Five years, 100 million. It looks like the Saints caved. Wow, they just caved. That's it. And I thought the compromise would come somewhere in the form of structure. Hey, we found a way to get him to 100 million, but he he capitulated with guarantees or something like that. It would be a more subtle indication of how they found a way to close the gap and get this done. But he got his $20 million per year that he wanted. And again, that's on the extension, not on the average of the six-year deal. There are agents who feel very strongly about anything that takes away from the value of the extension. But he was due to make only $1.1 million this year. You add that to the 120, it's 121.1 over six. It was $16.85 million. But it's not even 100 over 5. It's 19.25. He can get to $20 million per year, but he's got to hit some pretty high incentives, especially late in the deal, to get to that average of 20. It reminds me of the Mike Vick contract from seven years ago. When he signed for, what was it? Six years, $100 million, something like that. Whatever it was, it was $100 million. But the language of the contract made it clear that the last year was phony and it was never going to be more than an $80 million contract, but a hundred million just looked good. There's something about being able to say I'm a hundred million dollar man. And that's what Thomas wanted, even though he's not. And look, what, what, what can the Adam Schefter's in the end rap reports do? If the people who negotiate the contract are telling you that it's, 100 million instead of 96.25. And they tell everybody, five years, 100 million. What do you do? Do you say, ah, you know what? I'm not going to report that because I want to wait for it to be right. And I got a feeling maybe it's not right. Or you just rush to Twitter and get it out there because then you were first or you weren't last. You weren't behind one of your top competitors. See, the agents know how to manipulate the reporters, and the reporters don't do anything about it. What's a reporter going to do? I'm not going to report any more of your information. Okay. Well, your competitor will. And as I pointed out when we tweeted out the story, $20 million gets halfway around the world before $19.25 million puts its pants on. This is going to be called all day long a $100 million deal. And it's going to be thought of by anybody who's paying attention as a $100 million deal, even though the last $3.75 million isn't real. It's possible in the form of incentives. But this is one of those where what they should have said is five years up to $100 million. But they, they were not told the truth. And really, there will be no repercussions as a practical matter for that having happened. We need to extend our condolences to the family and the former teammates and colleagues of Nick Bonacani. What a story he authored over the years. The things he did after retiring from the NFL. He was an agent, a successful agent. He was involved with HBO's Inside the NFL for more than two decades. He was a highly successful business executive. Now, it was with a tobacco company and he was part of the crowd that was denying the addictive qualities and otherwise 
harmful effects of tobacco. But he thrived in that environment. And then he became a champion for research into healing spinal cord injuries after his son suffered a serious neck injury playing college football in the mid-80s. But really, I, I, I don't know that Renaissance Man really applies, but the guy did so many different things after being highly successful in the NFL. His career post-football had multiple successful phases. Most former athletes are happy to just find one thing that they do well and make good money at after playing their sport. Bonacani had several. He passed at the age of 78. I knew he wasn't doing well, but I... I mean, look, I'm 54. 78 doesn't sound all that old anymore, people. That's not that far off. There have been some NFL players recently who were in their 80s and late 80s. And, and, and I'm not going to embrace as completely as the NFL would like me to this idea that, well, they live even longer than the average person. But there are plenty of guys who played football back in some rough and tumble days who live to a very ripe old age. So I still think it's fair to say it's inconclusive at best. What football does to you, I think that there are some clear... Look, you can't say it does nothing. The repeated head trauma affects people. But there are plenty of people who played in days when it was a much more brutal game than it is now, who by all appearances, I guess you could say they would have lived longer than however long they lived. Maybe instead of 85, they'd make it to 92. I don't know. But it's it's uh, it's still in a state where plenty of medical research is necessary to fully understand how it affects people, who it affects what it really means to have CTE. That's not a popular take if you're in the media, because if you're in the media, you're supposed to say CTE is essentially a death sentence. It's just a question of when you're going to die. And if you say anything to push back against that, you're viewed as somebody who's being a shill for football. That's just kind of the attitude that has emerged over the years as it relates to journalists. And you're fighting the good fight in the war on football, if you're writing 10,000 word articles about CTE and all the, the ills of CTE. But I, I, I think that it's appropriate and I think it's responsible to say it's still too early to know what it actually does. And you know, I've had people tell me who were in and around the cigarette crowd before they finally realized in the 60s that cigarettes aren't good for you. They knew cigarettes weren't good for them. The kids who smoked would try to run and they'd be coughing and hacking. At a certain level, you knew. But you deluded yourself into thinking that, ah, it's no big deal. And I think for football, yeah, I think they've known for years. It's not a good thing. I remember seeing a feature in the 70s where they said playing football and practicing football is like putting the pads and the helmet on and going out into your backyard and running into your closed garage door over and over and over and over again for two hours. 
And I'd never thought about that in those terms until then. But that was in the 70s. People have known. You have to, look, if, if you have to have a sense that it's not something that is good for you. But again, the jury is still out on the impact that it has on the full range of the population of men that played football. And as the game gets safer and safer, it's going to be interesting to see what happens down the road. It, it may be by the time the medical research gets to the point where they fully understand what CTE does, there will be fewer instances of it. Who knows? Because the game has gotten safer. And a lot of the, the big hits that may have caused real problems for guys, those are now being removed from the game. But, but look, I, I'm not saying that, oh, it's no big deal. There's an issue there. It's part of the risk that is assumed by anyone who plays football. And that's the bottom line. At this point in the year 2019, no one can say they don't know the risks. And remember when the linebacker for the 49ers retired, Chris Borland, after only one year in the NFL, and that was heralded as the first domino in what's going to be a revolving door of players who retire from the NFL prematurely. How many guys retire after one or two years and cite head trauma? Not many. And again, in 2019, no one can say that they don't know the risks. All right, let's answer some of your questions. Well, before I do that, well, before I do that, let me say this. Summer's heat can be draining on your vehicle's battery. Rising temperatures can cause battery fluids to evaporate. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts now and have your battery tested free of charge. If your battery does need to be replaced, the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts will help you find the exact superstart battery that fits your truck or your car at a guaranteed low price. O'Reilly Auto Parts, better parts, better prices every day. All right, now is the point where we click on the link on Twitter that leads to your questions. And as always, several questions from the guy who runs the PFTPM Posse account. Players across the NFL are now closer than ever, as shown with Donald Penn talking to Trent Williams prior to signing with Washington. Penn and Williams could, could be, sounds like they may have worked together to secure the best outcome for each. Could players get power doing this a trend? I... I think they should do it. I think players should work together more. This gets back to the points we've been making as it relates to the negotiations among and between Ezekiel Elliott, Dak Prescott, Amari Cooper, and the Cowboys. Each has a different agent. They should work together. The players should work together. Players from different teams who play the same position should work together. The teams aren't allowed to collude. The players are. And I think for Donald Penn, it's just part of doing the due diligence. Hey, uh, Trent, they want me to sign here. What's happening? Are you going to be back or are you getting out? And should I sign with this team? Are they that bad? What do I need to know about Washington? What, what happened between you and them where you don't want to be there anymore? I think it's smart to take advantage of that information and to tap into those relationships. And I think the fact that 
free agency has fully matured in the NFL, those relationships are there. Used to be you played for one team. Those are the guys you knew. You didn't know the other guys nearly as well. But now there's a greater sense of brotherhood among all players because they understand that they may be teammates and they have been teammates or they have gotten to know each other. There isn't that same inherent acrimony among players who are on different teams the way fans would like it to be. I think the players today are far more likely to be friends even if they are on rival teams. And that's good for the players. If the Cowboys don't need Ezekiel Elliott slash rushing champion to win a Super Bowl, why did Jerry, Steven, and the boys use the number four overall pick on a player position they don't really need? And yes, I know they are just posturing and negotiating publicly. Yeah, that's... Look, they they knew after DeMarco Murray left and they struggled to replace him that they needed a difference maker to play running back and to be that straw that stirs our drink. That's what that's what Stephen Jones said on this podcast in May. He's the straw, if you will, that stirs our drink. The Cowboys, I'm convinced, had no idea that Zeke was going to hold out. They believed that he was perfectly content to wait until next year and that they could deal with Dak Prescott and Amari Cooper this year. He's forced their hand, and I think they're hunkering down into a more combative posture because they can't allow themselves to be pushed to overpay one guy because there's plenty of other guys they're going to be negotiating with. I don't know when this one gets resolved. And it may be that the Cowboys delude themselves into thinking they can win without Zeke because they just don't want to lose at the bargaining table against Zeke. And we've seen Jerry Jones delude himself thoroughly over the last 30 years. And he's starting to talk himself into a point where he can justify not caving in. Until he does. Fittis and Kane, similar to the Julio Jones contract, did the Patriots have to wait for the one-year anniversary of Tom Brady's last contract, which would be August 12? I think they do. But the bottom line is that's not the reason why they're not going to make any progress. The Patriots... Tom Curran believes the Patriots don't know what to do at this point because they don't know when Father Time is going to catch up with Tom Brady and whack him over the head with that giant hourglass or the sickle. Is it a sickle or a scythe? Whatever it is. Father Time is coming. And if you make a long-term commitment with Tom Brady that pushes cap dollars into future years and then all of a sudden he can't do it anymore, what do you do? A red zone out with a new CBA just over the horizon while Michael Thomas's contract proved to be a very good value for the Saints. That's the risk these guys are taking when they do five-year extensions with one year left on their current contracts. We saw that from Xavier Howard of the, of the Dolphins. We saw it from Kevin Byard of the Titans. Now we see it from Michael Thomas of the Saints committing through 2024. There's a chance come 2022, Michael Thomas is going to say, what the hell did I do? I'm getting screwed here. And you know what? I think the answer is, if I feel like I'm getting screwed, I'm just going to hold out. Because what's going to happen is the cap keeps going up, so the payout keeps going up, so the average salaries keep going up, so the other guys who are in your mind, less than you at the position are making more money than you and you get to 2022 and there's 
15 guys ahead of you and you're like, what the hell am I doing? I'm getting screwed here. So just hold out. It worked this year. It may work in 2022. And ultimately, you have to ask yourself, yeah, there may be an issue where I feel like I'm underpaid in a few years, but I'm really underpaid now in the last year of my rookie contract, and I'm carrying the injury risk. That's the thing about the new money analysis versus the total value at signing. And this is something that I've begun to point out. By signing that five-year, $96.25 million extension now, even though it makes it six years, $97.35 million, you're getting your contract now and not having to carry the injury risk for the last year of your current contract. That's important. Because if Michael Thomas had gone forward at 1.1, maybe he never gets that big contract. Maybe he tears an ACL. Maybe he suffers another injury that, that makes him not attractive on the open market next year. He's gotten his open market next year, or at least not open market, but market value contract a year early. He shifted the injury risk a year early. Leapers 500, realistically, in a tough division... What do the Broncos have to do this year to keep John Elway's seat cool? Does it even matter since there's no real owner and the prospective owner is going to rejoin the organization as a junior executive? I've gone back and forth on whether or not John Elway's on the hot seat. There's no owner there to fire John Elway. Now, Joe Ellis, who is one of the three trustees who will determine the outcome of this strange intra-family Willy Wonka competition where the trustees will pick one of seven Bolin children to eventually inherit the chocolate factory. They could, in theory, say, we just need to stop the bleeding here. If they have another losing season, it'll match 1970 through 1972, the last time the Broncos had three straight losing seasons. Back-to-back losing seasons hadn't happened since then. So at some point, it's on Elway. And you know what? Elway's master stroke may have been to hire Vic Fangio. I think the Broncos are going to be better this year. And I think if they hit 500, there will not even be a whisper of a discussion of John Elway being replaced, especially because they are now moving in that direction of Brittany Boland taking over as the owner. And if she is showing an inclination to stick with John Elway or at least to defer until she's in charge, the ability to make the final decision, then I think that Joe Ellis will be inclined to tread water until they get to the point where she takes over. Leapers 500, would the playoffs become more interesting or maybe awful in a mercenary fashion if the games had much higher stakes? Financial windfalls, a billion-dollar bracket, or something. Well, look, here's the thing. They could put more money into what you get when you win a playoff game, right? The playoff share could be a lot more significant. But what they do is they take that money and they they use that to pump up the salary cap. So, whereas the postseason generates a ton of revenue, that revenue gets thrown into the pot that determines the salary cap. They hold some aside to give the players an extra paycheck based upon how far they get, but it's peanuts in comparison to what they make during the regular season, especially the high-end players. 
So, I look, th- there's never been a guy, other than kind of Le'Veon Bell in 2017 when the playoffs were approaching, and I thought at one point maybe he's going to hold out of the postseason. I just think when you get to that point where you're just a few games away from a Super Bowl, I think the money doesn't matter anymore. You've made your money for the year. You're essentially working for free, but you've already been paid to do this thing, which involves, you know, in some cases, playing an extra 25% of the regular season if a team makes it to the Super Bowl after playing in the wild card round. Leapers 500 of the players on this list looking into the future, a fool's errand, if there was one. Who makes the Hall of Fame? J.J. Watt, Eli Manning, Von Miller, D.J. Hopkins, Julio Jones, A.J. Green, Al Michaels, and Matt Ryan. That's a curveball. Now, remember, every year there's a writer and a broadcaster who make it to the Hall of Fame as part of a separate avenue. It's not a bronze bust. It's a plaque outside the room where the bronze busts are, and it's very rewarding to know that ProFootballTalk.com is listed on there because Shereen Williams was put onto that plaque last year, the Dick McCann Award. I don't know why Al Michaels wouldn't eventually be recognized with the Pete Rosell Award that goes to a broadcaster for lifetime achievement. Sometimes guys just get overlooked, though. Howard Cosell never got that. Now, part of it, too, is Howard Cosell really didn't play the game. Howard Cosell didn't kiss the butts. And Howard Cosell, and I can relate to all this, Howard Cosell never got the external recognition that maybe he deserved. And you know what? He probably didn't care. That's what when, when you are a disruptor, when you have that mentality, part of the cost is the more traditional institutions, those who you've loudly criticized when needed over the course of your career, they're not going to reciprocate or they are going to, they are going to reciprocate. So I could see Al Michaels at some point getting that recognition as to the other guys, JJ Watt. Yes. Eli Manning borderline Shereen Williams who's one of the voters. Her argument that she made earlier this year on PFT live was as he plays more and more beyond the point where he was that Hall of Fame caliber talent, he's diluting his career and his legacy, and he's making it harder to get in. That's an interesting take. Von Miller, I think, gets in. He's got to rack up more sacks. He isn't even at 100 yet, but he's on track to get in. Hopkins on track to get in. Jones on track to get in. Green, we'll see. Matt Ryan, jury's still out. He's got a league MVP award. He's got a Super Bowl appearance. And he's working his way up the all-time ladder for a lot of these records very quietly. You know, I always say with quarterbacks, it's a combination of the factors that you look at. Statistics, longevity, championships, and dominance. And there are some guys who are on the wrong side of that equation. Donovan McNabb, I believe, is on the wrong side. But I know Andy Reid, the Chiefs head coach who coached Donovan McNabb in Philly, He said today that McNabb deserves to be in. I don't think he does. Because he doesn't satisfy any of those four categories. You don't have to have all four, but you better satisfy at least one of them. And McNabb doesn't have the all-time stats. He doesn't have the longevity. He played barely over a decade. He doesn't have a championship. 
the only thing he has going for me, there was a period of time where you could regard him as a dominant quarterback, but all pro quarterback, league MVP, but you know, at least Ryan has that league MVP award. So he can check the one box. We'll see if he can check longevity. We'll see if he can check, check statistics. Still be determined if he can uh, check the box for championships, although he did everything he could to win one. Well, almost everything he could. He didn't check out of a pass play when it should have been a run play, and I guarantee you Peyton Manning would have checked out of that pass play and run the ball. So, to be determined on Matt Ryan. Sergio D, do defamation laws exist in America? In Australia, some of the stuff written on Twitter, for example, the false Dan Lyons tweet about Jim Jordan would be headed for the courts. Defamation laws exist. I don't know what you're talking about with Jim Jordan and Dan Lyons. For public figures, though, it's a higher standard. Actual malice is the trigger for a defamation claim. You have to show, when it's a public figure, that the false statement was made with actual malice, meaning that you knew that the statement was false or that you acted with reckless disregard as to the truth or the falsity of the statement. That is the price that you pay by being a public figure. And I guarantee you, if somebody would tell a lie about me, I would have to prove actual malice because I've injected myself into the public forum. 1.5 million Twitter followers, platform with NBC on Sunday nights, website that had 623,000 visitors on Monday, I would have to prove actual malice. So that's where it gets a little more skewed in the United States. Sergio Diaz, another question. Have a look at the player salary information for Juventus of Italy. It equates to $157 million per year. Yes, there's no salary cap in soccer, but it makes the NFL look like small fry. It's amazing the NFL can't generate enough revenue to come close to this. Well, they do. They do generate the revenue. They just squirrel it away. See? The salary cap is one thing. The salary floor is the other. That's why in this next CBA, the union needs to push up the minimum and force teams to spend more. The whole idea of a salary cap when it was first implemented was to create a device that protects teams against their inclination to overspend. You've got plenty of teams that are underspending, taking full advantage of the right to only spend 89 cents on the dollar. That's what's going on. And that's the thing that needs to go from 89 cents to 95 cents per team. Steph Boyardee, worst injury you have ever had. I had broken ribs in 1979. I was 13. No, I was 14. I think it was 1980. I was 14. A bunch of us were climbing up a hill behind one of the neighborhoods where a couple of the kids lived and we were sliding down the hill. It wasn't like a it wasn't like mountain climbing, but it was steep. And there was a valley where a stream came together and I started to I was like, well, I'm just going to slide down and um, just work my way down and maybe grab some overground roots and and I remember I started to slide and it looked like it was not so steep that I wouldn't be able to slide. So I'm kind of sliding down and 
I grabbed what I thought was an overground route that was going to slow me down. And then I'd slide a little bit more and grab something and slow down. And when I grabbed that thing, it was just a stick. <laughs> and then off we went. And I'm thinking, well, all right, here we go. Let's go. Let's, let's have some fun. Super fun, happy slide. And the next thing you know, I started tumbling and I, I mean, I, I could have slammed my head into a rock. I mean, it was bad. It was bad. And I finally, I finally came to rest and, you know, I just remember just, I immediately knew something was wrong and went to the hospital, got x-rays and had three broken ribs. And there's nothing you can do. They can't put you in a cast when you have broken ribs. They, they, they put like a wrap, like this big girdle thing for, I don't know, several weeks to hold it all kind of tight together. But yeah, that wasn't good. And I've had, you know, I've, I haven't broken any bones. I've had sprained ankles torn hamstring but i've been fortunate watch i'm going to fall down the steps and break my arm today thanks for asking that question step boy rd i've had several concussions too i had a concussion hmm. when i was i've talked about this before i was very young i took a header off the basement steps onto the concrete floor and the next thing i know i'm waking up in the doctors at the house that wasn't good i why did i have another concussion I've had like three or four concussions over the years from stupid little things like playing basketball. Guy hit me right in the face with the top of his head. And I knew that was the, I knew that was the one time that now when, when I, when I was five and I did it, I didn't remember anything, but this, I just remembered, I just didn't feel well. And my wife who was pregnant with my son at the time had to drive me to the hospital at 1030 at night because I was in no, I was just loopy from, from that. And then like I, I slipped and fell in the shower once and banged my head off of that, that, that rail, that low rail that, you know, if you, you know, so you can take a bath. So they have to have that wall and man, that, that left me, that left me loopy. So I'm feeling loopy now, just trying to remember all these injuries. I always used to worry. I was very active back in the eighties and I always worried about having a torn ACL. I always worried about that. Because I played a lot of basketball. We played a lot of touch football. We played some tackle football. And one of my buddies did get a torn ACL. You know, once it's funny, you play tackle football your whole life with your friends. And then you go off to college. And when you come back, you have the nostalgia Thanksgiving week game. And everybody's gained about 15 pounds. And everybody's in not the kind of shape they used to be in. And that's when some real injuries happen. Freshman year in college, buddy of mine messed up his shoulder, dislocated. It was in a harness for six weeks after that. The next year, guy tore his ACL. It just, you know, you, you go through all those years where you can play tackle football and not injure each other. Then all of a sudden, you're all grown-ass men and you're injuring each other. Dr. J144, what's something you'd tell your 20-year-old in respect? I yeah, I would tell myself don't play tackle football when you're when you're doing, you know, just in case, even though I emerged unscathed. I don't know what I would tell my 20. I, you know what I would tell, well, at 20 I was already in college. I, I would tell myself at 20, quit worrying about everything, everything will work out. Because I remember at 20, I carried around a lot of stress. Because I felt like I had to know what I was going to do with my life. And I was studying engineering and it was a difficult curriculum. And I always felt like I was a, a half step behind 
the people who knew what was going on. I never really took to it. It never really clicked for me. I never really enjoyed it. And at times I felt like I was just kind of sleepwalking through college just to get on to the next level. And it was at 21 when I finally realized that law school was what I wanted to do. And that was that moment that like your life starts to fall together and you know that, you know, there's, you found your thing, you found your way, you found your passion. I would tell myself at 20, just quit worrying about whether or not you're going to find that thing that you're supposed to do. Because for all of us, I think it reveals itself in time and it can be very stressful. You know, 18 becomes 19 becomes 20 and you, you get caught up in that, that cycle of worry, worry, when am I going to know what I'm supposed to do? And am I destined to have a job where, you know, I work for 40 years and I just punch the clock and do the bare minimum and get the hell out of there and try to enjoy my life when I'm not there because I'm never going to like what I'm doing. I just remember having that very kind of almost not quite accepted. I didn't want to accept that. But I remember having a sense of dread that my destiny was going to be having one or more jobs that were going to consume my life from 22 to 65. And I was just going to end up wishing those eight to nine hours away every single day, Monday through Friday. And thank God that it all worked out. And I would tell my 20 year old self, just quit worrying about it. Just enjoy your life and quit worrying about that because it will take care of itself because obviously it did. Stephen A, can you ask your EA Madden NFL connection about NFL street game again? What, you want it to come back? I never really liked that game. I wonder if they could make a much better version of it now. I was never really into that game. Heather Brickell, if Mark Davis, Mike Mayock, and John Gruden are so honed in on improving, why keep Tom Cable consistently proves year after year he is subpar and cannot get it done? that's a good question because look, look how much better the Seahawks offensive line is without Tom Cable there. So I look, Hey, Gruden believes in him. And I think these coaches are inclined to go with guys. They're comfortable with guys. They're familiar with guys that they don't view as a threat guys. They aren't threatened by guys. They can trust personalities that they enjoy. Sometimes those personalities complement each other in a way that helps the head coach. And maybe John Gruden is such an offensive tactician, he doesn't need a great offensive line coach. Maybe he gets involved and does some of it himself. But it is a very strongly relationship-driven business. And you've got to feel good with the guys that you work with because you work together so many hours. Vandras 13, why do analysts keep saying Drew Brees can't throw the deep ball and using the narrative that Taysom Hill is there to throw the deep ball when he only threw four passes from week 10 to 17? Hey, look... They were deep passes, I think, when Taysom Hill came in. And I point to the pass that Drew Brees threw, the first snap on offense of the divisional round game against the Eagles. They planned that, deep ball to Ted Ginn, and Brees couldn't get enough behind it. I really do think, look, there have not been many quarterbacks in the history of the NFL that have functioned at a reasonable level beyond the age of 40. Just because Tom Brady is still getting it done with 42 coming up in only three days doesn't mean that Drew Brees is going to be able to get it done this year, next year, the year after that. It doesn't mean Ben Roethlisberger is not going to hit a cliff. There's a reason why older guys can't play in the NFL. Age eventually takes over. Father time eventually kicks your ass. 
and it bears watching it with Drew Brees because the indications are already there. Mike likes Sturt. Who's more likely to have a comeback year, Matt Stafford, Jimmy G, or Joe Flacco? You know, Matthew Stafford won the Comeback Player of the Year award, I think, in 2011, the year they went to the playoffs. It's like, he's not coming back from anything. He'd never been here. It's like the delayed Rookie of the Year award. So I think of the three, hmm, I'd say Jimmy G's got the best shot at it because he's coming back from that torn ACL. And if he can stay healthy, the 49ers can be a surprising playoff contender. But, you know, for Stafford, it's not really a comeback. It's a rewiring of his brain. He's never had this kind of coaching. He's never been expected to lead. He's never been driven the way he's being driven by the Detroit coaching staff. And, And I think we could see a much better version of Matthew Stafford this year than we ever have. On tour forever. So A.J. Green shreds his ankle on a subpar field in Dayton because the NFL wants to showcase their 100th season. Do teams have any power of pushback when it comes to decisions like these? We know they don't for hard knocks. I I would say that if the Bengals just didn't want to do it, all they had to say is no, we're not doing it. Nice idea. Marketing person at the NFL, but we're not doing it. But I think at a bare minimum, you want to be damn sure that the facility is good enough. Is it good enough to justify putting the team there? And the NFLPA is part of this too. They have these facilities and fields available for teams to practice. They should be practicing there. And anytime there's any idea that they're going to practice somewhere else, they better be damn sure that where they're practicing is good enough to meet the standards of player health and safety that everyone is promoting now. On tour forever. Any more details on the Michael Thomas contract? I'm sure the last two years are bogus years he'll never see, so it's probably going to be a three-year contract maximum. I'm told he's going to get about $60 million through four years. So that puts $36, $37 million into the last two years. Look, here's the problem with these contracts. After the guarantees are earned, it's a year-to-year deal where the team controls whether or not they're going to keep the guy. And as long as the guy is good enough to justify keeping him at that number, and if he's better than that, hey, even better for the team, they're going to keep doing it. The moment he slips below it, they rip the name off the back of the jersey, or they come to you and they say, hey, you got to take a pay cut or we're going to cut you. See, the the team has an out if they have regret in the last three years of a six-year contract. The player doesn't. The player's out is to hold out if the player has outperformed the back end of the deal, or if the market has otherwise passed the player by, and it's no longer fair to the player to continue to pay him at that rate. On tour forever, even if A.J. Green comes back fine from his ankle injury, what kind of leverage do he and Julio Jones have, considering they're both on the wrong side of 30? I think Julio Jones already has his contract. I think they already have a deal done. They wouldn't have done deals for Grady Jarrett and Deion Jones without knowing how much money Julio Jones was going to cost them. There are people throughout the league who believe that. But A.J. Green just should have held out. Look, here's the point that I was making earlier today on PFT Live. And the media is part of the problem here. And this was a plea that I made in our airing of grievances segment to anyone in the media. When a player holds out who is under contract, stop saying he's violating his contract. Stop saying he's failing to honor the terms of his contract. 
Anybody who listens to this podcast on a regular basis knows the reality. The reality is there are two contracts, the individual contract and the broader labor contract. And the broader labor contract gives a player who is under contract to a team the ability to withhold services by holding out. They could have negotiated the CBA in a way that makes it impossible for a player to hold out. The player has the right to hold out if he's willing to incur the risk that he's going to be fined $40,000 a day for most players if he doesn't show up. It's a business decision. But when the player gets labeled as someone who is violating his contract, he's a bad guy. This is what Chris Sims and I fleshed out today. And it's kind of fun when we trip into one of these rabbit holes on the air and we start having these little mini awakenings about what really goes on. If you're A.J. Green and you hold out and people start saying you've got a contract that you signed and you need to honor your contract, fans start to get pissed off at you. You have to worry after that about when you show up, when you walk out into your home stadium, there's going to be that small minority of fans who is going to be very loud because they're pissed off at you because you're being selfish and you're being greedy and you withheld services and you're a bum and they're more inclined to heckle you. You don't want to get heckled in your own stadium. You know you're going to get heckled half the year in an opposing stadium. You don't want to get heckled in your own stadium. And because we in the media... and I'll admit, I used to use that term, and I used to say, hey, you know what, I got no problem with young players holding out if they're under contract because they didn't really have much of a choice. They didn't have much negotiating power, but hey, if you're a veteran and you signed that deal, you knew what you were signing, you, 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 hey, you got to honor your contract, and I, my, my thinking has evolved. And I think we all who are in the media need to evolve our thinking to accept that the players have the right to hold out. And by labeling them as bad guys for not honoring their contracts, that sets the stage for them to get mistreated in their home stadium. And that's one of the reasons why plenty of guys aren't wired to deal with that kind of abuse. Dean Osborne, 42, which former Patriots coach manages to replicate successfully the Patriot way with his new team first, Flores, Patricia, or O'Brien? Well, I mean, O'Brien's already been kind of successful, right? Quietly. Now, he's not as... He's not as identified as a Belichick guy as some of these others because he went and coached his own team at Penn State before becoming the coach of the Texans. It's not the traditional work as an assistant with Bill Belichick until you get the nod to go coach your own team. Matt Patricia has, I think, a tougher road of changing the culture in Detroit because that culture of mediocrity is really baked in with the Lions. He's going to face more resistance than Flores in Miami. You know, a lot of people have criticized Brian Flores. I saw a scathing column from Armando Salguero, the Miami Herald, about the decision to fire Pat Flaherty and go with Dave DeGuglielmo as the offensive line coach there. Just another example of dysfunction. And yeah, look, I think it's smart. I think it's a good thing. How many times have coaches had concerns about an, an assistant coach who was hired in that that weird rush of lining up your assistants while you're trying to do the job that you have in the postseason, trying to pursue a championship, trying to get your ducks in a row for your staff, and you commit to a guy in Pat Flaherty, even though eventually another guy that you want becomes available. You've already given your word to Pat Flaherty, and he's already making plans based upon the fact that you're going to get the job, and he's going to get the job, and here we are in late July and you got concerns because you got the wrong guy and you just let it play out and you end up firing that guy during the season in the bye week or right after the season. 
Flores had an opportunity to upgrade. He had an opportunity to get a guy that he thought was a better fit with his system, with his style, and he did it. I think that's a good sign for the Dolphins. Because plenty of teams find themselves in a spot where they know they made a mistake. The question is, do you act immediately to fix the mistake, to rectify the mistake, or do you let it get worse by refusing to take action? So I I like what Brian Flores did, and I think that's a good sign. And, and it may be that not everybody who covers the team, you know, you get, you get used to, and I think this is what happens. And because there's a business aspect to this, if you're the Miami Herald and you're covering the dolphins and they have been inherently dysfunctional, you realize that that dysfunction sells because people want something that they can cling to as the, the resource for the venting of the frustration over the dysfunctional nature of the team. So the local newspapers, hey, you know what? A a column that criticizes the Dolphins does a hell of a lot better than a column that praises them. And we've made a nice little cottage industry here out of being that team that constantly criticizes the Dolphins, being that paper that constantly criticizes the Dolphins because the fans want to be able to read this constant criticism because they're fed up with this constant dysfunction that the Dolphins have. And I'd hate to think that, look, I I don't want to be overly cynical here. Maybe Armando truly believes what he wrote, and he would say he truly believes what he wrote, and probably be pissed at me if he hears this. But, But is it all that ludicrous to think that maybe in some of these markets where a team has been bad for a long time, they realize it's good for business if the team's dysfunctional, because then we can write these scathing op eds that generate traction? The everything is fine article isn't going to generate the same kind of traction. I just, I think in this specific case, there's actually reason to be, what's the word I'm looking for? There's just reason to feel good about this, to see that silver lining. I'm looking for something a little stronger, but I'm struggling with it here as I try to articulate these words in real time. Let's move on to the next question. When in doubt, punt. Panthers, Austria, how adding two weeks can work. Add one, but I, I, I'm done with the, the, the look, I, I'm sorry. I'd like to answer your question. I'm done with all the ideas and the machinations of the things the NFL can do. They're going to do whatever they do. They want to get to 18 games for monetary reasons. And the fallback would be 17 games and a second bye week, because then you get the Super Bowl to President's Day weekend. You get your 19 weeks of football. Right now they have 17 You add a game and a second bye week, you have 19. They want to get 19 weekends of football that they can sell. And I appreciate all the different ideas. They give me a headache. It's like long division trying to figure out some of these ideas. They're either going to go to 18 or 17, and it's going to happen. The question is when. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And maybe they start with 17, And if 17 works, then they go to 18. It's like easing yourself into a hot tub of water. You go to 17 before you go to 18. You don't go straight to 18. That that may be what they do. Jacob Coleman, I know this takes a lot of time for your personal life, so thank you, and I hope you keep it up, even if I don't always agree with you or your take. I appreciate the way you look at issues, both NFL and other, as well as how you present the takes. Well, thank you. I've, I've decided to do this three times a week for the foreseeable future or indefinitely sounds more definite than it is. That word indefinitely, oh, you are suspended indefinitely. Well, that just means you don't know when it's going to end. I'm going to continue to do this indefinitely. 
That's 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 my vow to you. I will continue to do this until I no longer do it. Gong Show West, burning question of the year. Now that the hiatus is over, did you finish writing your future New York Times bestseller? By the way, thank you for deciding to continue. PFTPM for the time being. I enjoy them immensely. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm struggling now. It's it's kind of funny, and and I I, I think I am going to write a book. It may just be a book of takes on football, like all the different things that that. I believe that from time to time you'll read about or you'll hear about. It's going to be just like a compendium. Is that the right word? I, get, I better work on getting the right words if I'm going to actually try to write them all into one, you know, one bound volume that you can carry around or put on your bookshelf or whatever. I'm trying to figure out the balance between my views on the NFL and the story of how this all happened. And I got some feedback from someone in the business recently that said, skew it more toward your views on the NFL. People don't care about media stories and how these things came to be. And, and look, I don't, I don't want to delude myself, and I don't, I don't want it to be, you know, you know I, I, haven't, I haven't split the atom here. Now, I think I can take little bits and pieces and snapshots of what's happened over the last 18 years and turn it into a little thousand-word essay that, that is an interesting story. How much of that do you do? How much navel-gazing do you do versus talking about football? And what I've been planning to do is basically write 100 to 150 essays from 750 to 1,000 words each, sometimes maybe a little bit more. And then once they're all done, figure out the best way to order them. And I want to come up with a very creative way to order them so the reader's always kind of wondering what comes next and slap it all together. Now, apparently with nonfiction, you don't have to have the whole thing completed. So right now I'm kind of going through this process of laying the foundation to get someone to buy it. And then once they buy it, then you just finish it. And for me, I think knowing that, number one, it's going to be published. And number two, there's a specific date in the future when it needs to be done. That's the best way for me to get it done. You give me a deadline, I'll get this thing done. You don't give me a deadline, I'm going to meander with it for the next five years. So I have been writing some of it, but over the past week or so, things have unexpectedly accelerated from the standpoint of finding someone who will sell it to a publisher who will then say, we want it by X date, get to work. We like the idea, we're behind it, we're going to publish it, here's some money up front, now go do your thing. So... We'll see what happens. But I did get some done with it. And as I was starting to build some momentum working on it, that's when I ended up down the rabbit hole of talking about what it takes to turn it into something that would actually be sold and published. And that's, that's it's my focus has shifted. I've been working on it, but I've been working on it from a different perspective, writing a proposal and doing some sample essays. And and uh, I'll keep you posted. I'll keep you posted. I don't know if anybody's going to buy the damn thing. And I really don't care. It's just, you know... I do the same thing all the time, and it's kind of neat to have a different little venture that I'm going to piss around with. And, you know, at the end of the day, for the people out there who listen to this, you want to have something you put on the shelf. It's something you put on the shelf. You know, you feel like you're part of this because you listen to it. However many, I don't know how many listen to it every day. I get the numbers every once in a while. I don't pay much attention. But enough of you give me direct feedback that you enjoy it, that, that I'm going to keep doing that. And I will find some time. And and I've identified little pockets of the day where I can I can put in and when I have a topic in mind, I can sit down and crank out 750 to 1,000 words in less than an hour, sometimes in less than a half hour, if I really get in a good rhythm. So it's just a matter of doing that 100 to 150 times, and I've already got a decent amount of it done, so 
We'll see where that goes. But thanks for asking. I'm sure you regret that lengthy explanation. Steph Boyardee, first team you will play as in Madden 20. Hey, my ultimate team. Straight into the ultimate team. And they got all those different alternative uniforms that give your team a little bit of boost. That's part of what you're trying to strive for. So the team I've always been, the ultimate team resets. You get it to a 98. That's the thing that drives me crazy about Madden. And, and just for a refresher out there, even though I'm on the wrong side of 50, you know, I think it's okay for grown men to enjoy video games. It's, it's, it was a different vibe altogether 20 years ago. I will ride an exercise bike for an hour a day. I'm going to do it here coming up as soon as we finish this. And I work on the website a little bit more, but I ride for an hour a day. I keep my heart rate between 125 and 135 and I play Madden. And that's the only way that I can get an hour in. Nothing else allows me to get an hour in without constantly obsessing over how much time I have left. So, um, I already have Madden 20. They, they sent me a download code for it last week. My Madden team is up to a 77. You, you, really, you build it fast, and then it really slows down. But uh, it, that's the frustration of it. You get the new version. You spend the next 11 and a half months working on getting that team as good as it can be. And I had like 15 99s, and I had, you know, the team was a 98, and I was doing well playing online, and, you know, and, and, uh, and then it all gets reset again. And, and when I got the new game, it's like, I'm not going to start playing it until the game's out. I want to, I want to enjoy the last week or so of the last version of Madden. That never takes, that never sticks. Once the new one's out, you start playing the new one. So I, I like it. It's fun. And uh, it feels a little smoother. The, the, uh, as, as the game loads and as you, as you select your options and stuff, it feels more vibrant. It feels more fun this year than it did last year. Not that, you know, I always worry there's going to be a version that falls off a cliff and I'm just going to have to go find something else to play. I'd probably go back to FIFA at that point. If there's ever a version of Madden where I just like, well, this sucks. I got to find something else to do over the course of the next year while I'm on the exercise bike. The great corn Florio. Oh God. Since Thomas got 20 million per year, what will Julio Jones new contract look like? It'll look like whatever it already looks like. Cause I think the thing's already done period. I think it's already done. And it's just a question of when they announce it. Steph Boyardee, favorite pair of shoes you have ever owned, brand or type of shoe? God, has there ever been like a shoe that I just couldn't, I, I never, ha, I, I've never had a pair of shoes where it's like, oh man, I can't wait to wear those shoes. Now I did, uh, on the way to the Super Bowl, my wife and I got to the airport early, we grabbed some lunch and there was a, a shoe store next door. And I don't even know the brand or the type, it's just like a loafer. That's got laces in it, but it is extremely comfortable and I can be on my feet all day long and 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 you don't get that aching in your knees and your hips and your ankles, extremely comfortable shoe. And it's kind of a suede, but it doesn't get messed up. It cleans up really easily. I don't, I don't, I think they're right here. Are they right here? Uh, I think they're right over there. I'm just too, here, you know what? Hang on. I'm going to go get them so I can properly answer the question. It's one of the benefits of not cleaning up the office. The shoe was over there. All right, now let's see what kind of shoe it is. It's an Echo, E-C-C-O, and uh, extremely comfortable. Uh, I, I don't know what the model is, but uh, very comfortable. Was not cheap. Um, it's Gore-Tex. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a Gore-Tex shoe, so uh, that's why it wasn't very cheap. 
All right, recliner QB. Most people believe the new contract for Julio and the Falcons is done and sitting in a drawer waiting final signatures. Now that Michael Thomas is signed, do you think Julio deal will be revised? I, I, I think that the, I just think it's done. I think it's done. It's just a matter of time before they pull the sheet off of it. And Julio Jones has already said he doesn't care about anybody else's contract. I mean, in the event that Michael Thomas got a better deal, then they're going to have to deal with it. And I think part of it will be his agents will make sure that that they that they leak it in a way and characterize it in a way that makes it sound as good as it possibly can. Dean Osborne, 42. Can you recommend any other good mob books apart from Goodfellas slash Wise Guy? Well, you know, I just downloaded one today because there's a new Martin Scorsese movie that is coming out later this year called The Irishman. And it's based on a book called I Heard You Paint Houses. And I thought it was a novel, but it is a nonfiction book. And it is about um, a guy that was involved in the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. And it is a movie that has Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, and it's supposed the movie's supposed to be really good. And uh, I, I'm always concerned about that. I'm always concerned. I'm going to get my hopes up, and I'm not going to end up liking it. But and I thought, ah, you know what? I'll read the book after I see the movie because if you read the book, then you get disappointed by the movie. Man, I've downloaded the book. I haven't started reading it yet. I got a couple, a couple other books I'm going to try to read. I may resist reading this one until after I see the movie, but the movie's supposed to be good. So the book should be good as well. I Heard You Paint Houses is the name of the book, and it is by, it is by, uh, let's see. It is by, I'm getting there, Charles Brandt. I Heard You Paint Houses. All right, Mike likes dirt. What if Wednesday Tom Brady gets traded to San Francisco instead of Jimmy G? Uh, remember reportedly when the 49ers first called the Patriots, they said, Hey, can we get Tom Brady? And they laughed at them. I, I, I I don't know. Tom Brady and Kyle Shanahan working together. They have enough there that the, the 49ers would thrive in a division that has the Seahawks and the Rams. I don't know. I, I don't think Tom Brady would have been, if that trade would have happened during the 20, what was it during the 2017 season 2017 2018 the Patriots have been to both Super Bowls since then I have a feeling that uh the 49ers wouldn't have been to a Super Bowl I think Tom Brady's better off the way it's played out Vandras 13 does the NFLPA have an advantage in the CBA talks because of the 100 season the NFL wouldn't like players striking with such a big moment on the line they're not going to strike until 2021 at the earliest. So they don't have to worry about that. They'd like to get a deal done so the CBA talks don't mar the 100 season celebration. That That's an unrealistic objective, though. And I think the NFL has realized that the players don't share that desire to get this thing done before the season begins. So the players uh, are going to want a premium in order to get the deal done before the start of the season. The NFL is not willing to go there. Somebody just asked me if I watched the Irishman trailer. So the trailer's out. For the movie based on the book, I Heard You Paint Houses. All right, I probably should wrap this up. Uh, let's see. One more. Mike Tobacco. When will the vote? I love that name. Mike Tobacco. When will the voters get it right and induct Rodney Harrison to the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Only defensive back in league history with 30 sacks and 30 interceptions. He was a leader. He was a champion. He made mistakes, but he was honest about them, unlike other big names. And, you know, Mike Dempsey, my buddy at 1010XL, he, you know, he kind of stuck his finger in my eye on Twitter over Rodney and the the HGH violation from his last season in the NFL. Rodney is the only guy who has ever publicly acknowledged that he he was trying to get an advantage 
by taking a PED. Everybody else is, well, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know I was taking it. It was this. It was that. I, I would never intentionally cheat the game. I mean, look, I think I'll, I, I, if that's true that all these guys are just accidentally ensnared in the PED policy and they've never caught any deliberate and intentional cheater, it's not a very good policy. Because surely there's people out there who are deliberately cheating and presumably getting away with it while all the poor suckers who are accidentally taking the wrong supplement they got down at the GNC are the ones who are serving the suspensions. And and look at it this way. Because apparently there's been a push for Rodney, but it can't get any traction because of the PED issue. How many guys are in the Hall of Fame that blatantly used PEDs in the 70s and the 80s before the NFL finally got wise and started testing for it? How many of those linemen from the 70s and the 80s were pharmaceutically enhanced? when there was no testing, when there was no policy against it. How easy would it be to justify using a steroid to help yourself recover from an injury, to give yourself an edge in training? Because you know what? Others are doing it. I need to do it too. When in Rome, baby, a lot of guys, presumably, have bronze busts who were using steroids back in the days when it was the Wild West of steroid use. So... I, I, it's unfortunate that more Patriots players from those 2000s Patriots that won three Super Bowls in four years aren't in. Ty Law's getting in this week. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick eventually will. Adam Vinatieri eventually will. The Steelers have nine players from the 70s in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All right, that's it for today. We'll do another one probably tomorrow. One more this week, either tomorrow or Friday. Three a week, indefinitely. And I definitely appreciate you listening to the PFTPM podcast. Have a great day. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.